I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening. Uh, Anne Enright is known to you all. Uh, she's a great presence in contemporary writing. It was in 1991 that Angela Carter, speaking of Anne's first book, The Portable Virgin, called her work elegant, scrupulously poised, always intelligent, and not least original. She followed that book with a novel, The Wig My Father Wore, and then in 2000, with What Are You Like, about a set of female twins. Followed that with The Pleasures of Eliza Lynch, to my mind, a piece of pure style and rigorous empathy. She won the Booker Prize for The Gathering in 2008, followed by two virtuosic novels, The Forgotten Walls and The Green Road. She also wrote a work of non-fiction, Making Babies, and two books of short stories, Taking Pictures and Yesterday's Weather. But we're here tonight to talk about Actress, her novel out just this past week, talked about everywhere and reviewed with love, indeed, in the current issue of the London Review of Books, to which Anne has been a forceful contributor since 1995. Actress is about a famous Irish actress, Catherine O'Dell, and the story is told by her bright daughter, Nora. It's a novel that looks at both sides now, the real world of stardom and the painted world of domestic life, the realism of performance, perhaps, and the theatrics of family relationships. A few days ago, the Washington Post said Anne Enright writes so well that she might just about ruin it for everyone else. The deceptively casual flow of her stories belies their craft. We'll be getting into that question of craft tonight, but to get us started, Anne's going to read a page or two from Actress. Thank you, Andrew O'Hagan. That's a wonderful introduction. How nice to be here. There's great talk of thoroughbles backstage. Um, people ask me, what was she like? And I try to figure out if they mean as a normal person. What was she like in her slippers eating toast and marmalade? Or what was she like as a mother? Or what was she like as an actress? We didn't use the word star. 
Mostly, though, they mean, what was she like before she went crazy? As though their own mother might turn overnight like a bottle of milk left out of the fridge, or they might themselves be secretly askew. Something happens as they talk to me. I'm used to it now. It works in them slowly, a growing wonder, as though recognizing an old flame after many years. You have her eyes, they say. People loved her. Strangers, I mean. I saw them looking at her and nodding, though they failed to hear a single word, she said. And yes, I have her eyes. At least I have the same color eyes as my mother. A hazel that, in her case, people liked to call green. Indeed, whole paragraphs were penned about bog and field when journalists looked into my mother's eyes. And we have the same way of blinking slow and fond as though thinking of something very beautiful. I know this because she taught me how to do it. Think about cherry blossoms, she said, drifting on the wind. And sometimes I do. Such were the gifts I got from Catherine O'Dell, star of stage and screen. How are you, O mother of mine? Never better, she used to say and the blossoms drifted by the tree load when she looked at me. There was a man in the kitchen in Dartmouth Square where everything important in my life seems to have happened who knew someone who had slept with Marilyn and never washed, he said. Some evening in my childhood, I came down the stairs to hear this news, and he was such a nice old man, it stained me ever since. So when people ask, what was she like? I have an urge to say, pretty clean, actually. And then to add, I mean, by the standards of the day. Thank you. Can you take your watch off? I will. So on that question that opens the book, you know, what was she really like, keys into one of the big questions of our time, I think. We live in a period where obsession with celebrities become a sort of overused notion, but actually we do live with it every day, that notion of promoted specialness. And I wanted to ask you about fandom to start off with. Just what is this business of loving a stranger? Well, uh, uh, there, are, there are two things that I, are a few things that I drew on when I was um, uh, drawing this picture of uh, Catherine O'Dell. There were a few times in my life when I went about with Seamus Heaney and, and I saw what happened when people started talking to him. And I read about it subsequently in a book of neurology about the disinhibition that happens deep in the hippocampus when we see someone who we think of as so superior to us that something happens. People literally opened their mouths and nonsense came out of them. Pure nonsense. Seamus would just smile for a moment and give them the chance to recover themselves (laughs) and then start again. Um, So that was one thing. The other thing was the more the gaze, you know. There's a description of uh, Catherine O'Dell in the book with people looking at her and they're star-struck. I was very taken by the word struck and that they're, that because it's a blow, you know, and their faces, it took me a long time to describe these people, their, their faces are a mask of delight. And it's that moment of enthrallment that's a just about to turn. So it just turns into... I mean, mask would be a key word in the book. 
So it turns, it's just the moment of, of freeze before it turns into the opposite. Because the look in their eyes is not one of admiration, simple, but of disaster. Yeah, about you actually to you say that it's more about disaster. Yeah. That, that notion that, which is quite a complex one, yeah. isn't it? That they thrive in a gladiatorial way on, as it were, their specialness, but also possibly their destruction. Yeah, well, I mean, at a more human level, when it's not adoration and disaster, it might be admiration and malice. So, uh, uh, Nora, who is the narrator of the book, she has two gay boyfriends called Michael, one, one after the other, and they're both very interested in getting into her mother's bedroom and admiring the things on her dresser and touching the objects that she has, you know, the, the sateen pillows on the bed. Um, and Nora, at the age of 18 or 19, tells them quite morally, in her little Puritan way, that for some people, uh, malice runs, admiration runs so close to malice that you can't tell the difference. But that's just a lighter version of this adoration into disaster. So that's a more calibrated and social <coughs> version of that. And as you were planning the book, can you tell us, obviously you, you were going to bring us into company with this notion of what was she really like, but from the beginning, were you also, did you know you'd be interested in what the world seemed like to her? You know, what does the world look like to a famous person? It doesn't actually matter much because the star is a projection, as a screen for all our projections. So what she wants or is... As, apart from being ineffable and hard to describe and hard to capture in, in life as in a novel, but it doesn't actually matter because the indifference of the crowd to her personal reality, whatever it might be. And I was really interested in the hunger and the, uh, and the avid nature of that attention. Um, and the fact that she, later in the book, she, that she performs the disaster. She shoots a man in the foot and suddenly she's more talked about than two. And there's that feeling of circling that nobody's actually going to approach her directly. They're just going to... So that it is quite an excluding um, uh, uh, reality for her as well as everything else. I mean, we're familiar, aren't we, all of us, with the notion that celebrity is a mask that eats into the face. But it's worth pausing over the differences you see, perhaps, between an actor and a star. What is the difference? I love it. I mean, this thing about the mask, I don't know about eating into the face. I like the crisp, the crispness of the moment of the mask. But for me, they sort of get shed, you know? Mm. So they're more, they're, they're like the skins of a snake or something. So the various persona that she goes through, and these are other more formalized and playful masks on, on the theater stage, those persona that she adopts and those masks that she takes on can be quite carelessly and gracefully uh, Discarded. But it also can seem like a state of being. There's a wonderful moment in the book, for those who have read it or will, the, where she's taking her bow and she sort of almost as a form of grace or ritual sort of gives and performs perhaps as much as when she was in the park yeah. or more. And there is another moment when she's leaving, she, she, late in her, in, in her career, she finds it harder and harder to go out. Um, of the house and she, everything gets lost and she can't find her lipstick and she can't find the right blouse and she's thundering around the place. And I think everybody remembers this of their mothers trying to leave a house. That it wasn't always an easy affair. And, and, and actually children spend a lot of time preventing their mothers from leaving the house. So it's quite an interesting little moment. I sometimes think of perfume as the scent of your mother walking away from you. Because that was the only time perfume was used in our house. Anyway, at the hall door... She, uh, she looks into the mirror in the hall and she locks 
eyes with her reflection in the mirror and something happens around the taut line of her gaze as she arranges herself mm. around, you know, like a series of levers and weights and then walks out in his famous all day. So we all put ourselves together for the world and we all, you know, get a mask to meet the faces that we meet. Yes. <clears throat> or a face. It doesn't have to be a mask. But is that an aspect of stardom as opposed to just being an actor? Because presumably you've got yeah. actors. I mean, you've lived among actors. You're married to one. Um, you know about this. Some of them simply go to work. Yes. They know their lines. They turn it on. They leave. That's not a star necessarily, is it? No. And she's a star by accident. Um, Catherine O'Dell takes great comfort in, in her craft. Um, she laughs at her father, who's the kind of actor who only learns his own lines. I think that was actually the kind of actor I was, really. <laughs> <laughs> I played the maid in Ghosts by oh, Henry Phipps, and I had no idea what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to do an exam on it, and you know, I was like, oh, God, yeah, well, the maid comes on. <laughs> and then she goes off again. But she takes great uh, comfort in the integrity of her craft, mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, in, the, in those, those were the days when people talked about egotism a lot. She's so egotistic. Well, remember that? Remember that when everyone was an egoist or egotist, and now they're all narcissists. <laughs> That's right. But I do think narcissist is a better kind of frame of reference or a better circumference of ref- reference for the glamour of stardom, mm. which is a communal grandiosity or a communal state of wonder and beauty and alarm. So it's kind of a group narcissism that happens in the darkness of the theatre where Catherine O'Dell was on stage. Um, So it does does bring you, it brings us, as the book indeed does very quickly, uh, to this question of the overshadowed child. You know, stardom, and at least that magnitude of stardom, uh, if there's also motherhood in the mix, there is the question of this overshadowing. In Making Babies, uh, your non-fiction book, you said something about mothers and writers that stuck in my mind, that, um, that you'd never met a writer who didn't have a demanding or difficult mother in their own eyes. Is that something that you'd... See, that was because I was only talking to writers for years. And, I, I don't, and I'm not sure if I've met a shopkeeper. I don't just ask them, unfortunately, whether they have difficult or demanding mothers. But I'm sure they too do, the people on the bus... Anyway, yes, I did float this for a few years, and a guy started to cry in front of me. I said, M- writers have big mothers, and he just started to cry. I, I, having, a, having a star for a mother, and this quick question of overshadowing, Yes, I mean, it's something that comes up again and again in the book, and in a sense, it's a slow reversal. I don't want to spoil things, but... Yeah, well, if you look at, say, Carrie Fisher, even, in Postcards on the Edge, and uh, if you uh, look at Mommy Dearest or whatever, this overshadowing uh, shadowing is the cause of great grievance, and great, you know, grievance is also within the family of narcissistic emotions, the grievance is one of the key ones, envy being another one. Um, and they're quite aggrieved at the size, uh, at, the, at the irreducible size of the mother. Mm. Because you can't reduce it because it's not even there, it's out everywhere, all around. Um, and you made a point earlier when we were talking that uh, memoirists, and the, and, the, and the book pretends to be a memoir for, the, for a while, they end up sometimes hating their subject or loathing their subject, or eating their subject. So um, the temptation would be for this daughter who's writing a memoir to, 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 to supplant her mother in the, by the writing and by the possessing of her in the book. But Nora supplants her in her own life and in her loves. And sort of halfway through the book, she 
uh, it, it turns into a book about her. And, right. and therefore, she's sort of the Oedipal crooks has been turned neatly. It does and raise she doesn't that, need to eat her mother. It raises that question, you know, whether writing is, in a Nabokovian sense, a form of assassination. Mm. Is she aiding her mother's fame by writing about her, or is she killing her off? Well, it's all, uh, there's an awful lot about possession in the book, and uh, I, am, I am interested in language and naming as acts of possession, and acts of possession are also acts of destruction. So you can kill something by naming it, and sometimes in the world of voodoo, that's how things are killed. So, so this, the, this possessing happens on the level of the, the word, but it also happens in the, in, in the structure of the book. When a journalist academic comes to talk to Nora at the beginning of the book about her mother and says, what was she like, what was she like? Nora says, she was mine, which is basically that, that, that sense of possession and that tenderness of possession never leaves her. She's not anxious about possessing the maternal or, or, or the feminine or whatever goodness inheres in that relationship. Um, and she continues to possess her quite easily throughout the book, but she doesn't give us to. She doesn't give her away. Yes, she doesn't give her to the reader. Then, but constantly she just through the book, her. there's this uh, very vital and strange bond of obligation. Almost, you might say. I asked you earlier if it was possible in the Ireland of your childhood or, the, or Ireland now to say publicly that one's mother was a bad person. Well, this is something that I got from an essay in the London Review that I can't remember who or what wrote it. Um, it was, uh, you know, those endless psychological things that HR companies used to make people fill out. Are you an arrow or a boat? Are you a navigator or a flyer or whatever? And, and, and the second last, or the last question is, is or was your mother a bad person? And apparently if you say yes to that question, you're not going to get the job because they consider you to be mad. Because <laughs> no one's mother is a bad person because the word mother means good person. Mm. That's what it means. I don't know what you thought it meant. But it means good person, goodness. It doesn't mean a woman who got pregnant and something came out of her that turned into a human being or was a human being. It means goodness. And I just want you to, you know, not disagree with me on that. <laughs> I mean, I recognise the mania in Scotland, even today, I mean, if you were standing in a shopping area and there was a woman with a drip, an elderly woman with a dripping knife in one hand and a stick of dynamite in the other coming at you, yeah. people would be rushing to you to rugby tackle you saying, don't be horrible to that nice woman, she's your mother. You know? <laughs> or there's a great line of Dairy Girls and they're walking down the hill in Dairy Girls and, and, and one of the Girl says to the girl says, "You can't be going ringing childhood childline every time your mother says she's going to kill you." <laughs> <laughs> Another very important strand in the book is it's fairly new, I think, to the contemporary novel. You, 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 you'll tell me if I'm wrong, um, and it's about male envy in women's lives. Yeah. Could you talk to me about that? Well, when we were talking about the family of emotions that belongs in that narcissistic sort of sphere, envy is a key one. Uh, uh, um, and, and sometimes envy as misogyny, which is a kind of piercing rage. Um, so the men in the book, there are a couple of men in the book, and I, I don't think it has been written before mm. because women haven't been in a position where men might envy them 
much, mm-hmm. more or less. And, and, and an enormous amount has been said or, or considered about female envy among themselves, like we're all sort of rats in a sack, you know, um, eating each other up. But, but, but out in, in the world of ambition, there are many forms and styles of envy. And, uh, uh, and it's not a nice emotion. And I, when I, you know, I love all these discussions about what the difference between envy and jealousy is. I would be using envy in a kind of Kleinian way. Um, Melanie Klein wrote on envy and gratitude. And it's very much about, a, a two, it's very dual. It's a dyad. His jealousy is triangulated. You want something that somebody else has. You want to take it away from them. With envy, you want to spoil or poison the goodness itself. It's very nasty. Um, this, of course, is the week of um, Weinstein's conviction. And coming out of talking about male envy, I want to continue with it for a moment. When you wrote about the Me Too movement in the LRB, you said, quote, the Me Too movement isn't just a challenge to male entitlement. It may also pose a general question, question about male sanity. Yeah. Could you open up on that for us? Well, um, the absence of boundaries is highly narcissistic, um, I suppose. Um, and that the idea that if women are attractive to you, then they mean it. That kind of constant blaming of, of a woman for whatever goes on, that, that's uh, a bit insane. It, it, there is a general kind of lack of boundaries between see, want, touch, have, mm. um, that the fantasy of Hollywood seems to encourage one way or the other. Was that on your mind as you were forming this book to the extent that you can tell? Well, I mean, that argument about male sanity was literally because I talked to a young doctor who was, uh, during the Me Too conversations that were happening in the end of 2017, and a lot of the women who were talking to me were talking about their careers one way or another. They brought their talent and their youth and their gift to a place where it was spoiled by some old fucker, Um, and they were put in their place in a way that they found incredibly difficult. But I talked to a young doctor who said that she was more or less, not, not all the time, but that, that she is a doctor in a hospital, was uh, molested by her patients. And I thought, well, that's insane. If somebody comes to m- make you better and you put your hand on their arse, that means you're mad, doesn't it? Yes. It does mean you're mad. Do you think this represents, it's a big question, it may be impossible to answer, but it's the week to ask it. Do you think this represents a permanent change in the way, the way men not only conduct themselves, but think about themselves around women? I really don't know. I do think that the assertion of consent is a new thing for women. When I grew up in Catholic Ireland, marriage was the only consent that was necessary because you were going to be a virgin until that day. So there was no conversation about the manners of staying out of someone's bed or getting into someone's bed. So the, the, the manners and the etiquette were different in other territories, but that ingrained idea of pursuit was uh, difficult to overcome, that a decent and respectable woman could not consent because to consent to something was to allow yourself to be not respectable or not decent. So the fact that women are owning their own desiring rather than their own attractiveness is a shift certainly in female consciousness that not only 
must that they have the power to consent, but that it's not all a question of pursuit, that there might be some equivalence of desiring there, which I think is a great move forward yes. in general. As to what the... I don't know what... I, I, I just don't know enough about... Um, but just as somebody living moving. in the world, it's not yeah. really a question to you as a writer. It's, you know, as you go about your biz, do you think, Christ, it's never going to be the same again after all this? Well, actually, some people are continuing... Continue. Some people are mad, actually. Mm-hmm. And I think that some people are in a weird space and, and they continue to do mad things. Um, as I've seen only recently, it's like, what? Did none of that ever happen? Anyway, that's kind of another discussion. I think young men have a different conversation going on now, um, and they have a counter to what young men do to each other, mm. which is to egg each other on and, and to be, you know, the hard man, and, to, and, they, and they, they, they have a kind of currency. So you need an alternative conversation for men to have access to at you know, in their teenage and early years and early 20s. And that now is available to them too. I mean, the men in this novel are, are sort of visibly unseated um, by their behaviour. The thinking around them sort of, in a sense, almost neutralises them to some extent. They don't get away with anything. Do you think? Yeah. I mean... I mean w- they don't get to do, as it were... I mean, time's up on them getting away with it and nobody noticing, put it that way. Yeah, but I had to... I had to uh, uh, the, the narrator is older than I am and I had to be very careful not to be anachronistic to her actual experience and her powers of articulation. So I had to just... She describes it to herself in the language of the time, but it's experienced in the body in a way that we recognise from the modern mm. conversation. Um, the other thing that I did, which hasn't been called out on, I'm glad to say, is that I gave one of the problematic ma- men in the book quite a seriously sad history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a, and a very usual and ordinary history as well. And to connect those dots, was I was happy to do that too, I suppose. Well, that's a gift to the reader. One of the things that one would say quite plainly about the book is it's a kind of generational study. And I, I was moved to ask you, uh, to what extent was keeping up appearances, because of course that is a form of show business too, to what extent was that keeping up appearances an aspect of your own childhood? Yeah, we were really not very good at all of that. Or it wasn't a very visual culture when I was growing up. But there was a huge taboo on speech. I mean, I, I, there was nothing that was ever said within earshot that I wasn't told not to repeat. And here I am. <laughs> Don't you go saying that to anyone now. <laughs> and you say, what? what was that that I wasn't supposed to repeat? Don't you go saying that now. And I'm actually, I still get it from my family, as you may imagine. Don't you go saying that now. With cause. Now they have cause. Um, because I might, you know, it might be more broadly uh, broadcast. But in the old days, who would care? Um, and it goes way, it goes back beyond the suburbs where I grew up to the rural Ireland, where people counted each other's sheep as acts of enmity, and uh, <laughs> I don't know, or counted each other's cows. And the, the whole idea that anyone would know anything about your business, whether you used two or three spoons of tea in the pot. <laughs> was a cause of, of great alarm and potential shame. And there was very little that was shameful about it. And then you realise that actually there was stuff going on mm-hmm. here or there 
in those rural areas, and there were deaths, there were suicides, there were certainly sexual uh, um, disasters of one description or another that were going on. There was bullying of, you know, there were all kinds of awful stuff happening in the countryside, as we know, as well as the lovely countryside. I mean, we're, we're, we're focusing especially and deliberately on actress tonight, but one could create a link between your books, I think, relating to what you've just said about the business of saying in a culture we're not saying is deemed to be good behaviour. I mean, and as an essayist too, you've never been shy of saying, not just having your say, but of putting things out there which uh, are liable to cause embarrassment or self-consciousness. I know, I'm a martyr to the truth. <laughs> In a sentence. <laughs> this question of politics in the book. Now, I mentioned this to you earlier. Um, there's a moment where uh, it becomes clear that Kathleen O'Dell, the famous actress, um, supports the IRA, uh, to be straightforward about it. Um, she said, uh, when a bombing occurs, she, she's had to say, it's not us. Yeah. That word, us has great resonance, not only in those pages, but right through the novel, I think. And I, worried, I wondered about that tendency. Um, it, people give names to it. America, of course, during those years was a place where provos would go. There was a sort of chic around them, wasn't there? Um, and the theatre of war, if you like, is something that plays into the other theatricality in this book. Could I just get you to open up on that? There, there is a theatre of, of nationality involved. And it's very interesting what happened from the 50s onwards in Ireland when Ireland became its own most successful export. And, and actually the tourist board was the most successful part of the Irish um, economy because it sold back to the Irish population a picture of themselves loading turf into creels on the back of a donkey and, and, and being red-headed and sweet-natured and lovely. Um, so that export went to America um, very strongly and was used as a way of drawing back in American money and American emigrants to come back to Ireland and to be happy and, and spend their money there, their fantastic dollars. But um, Catherine O'Dell was born in Heron Hill. She wasn't born, like Michael McLeamore, that other legendary Irish actor who was born in Kensal Green. And so her Irishness is a matter of choice and, and, and of uh, costume as much as anything else. She's a romantic and a rebel, and it didn't suit her to be English. She wanted to be Irish, and so she was. And she becomes this idea of the red-headed Irish woman in a plaid shawl. And she goes off to America to be that thing there too, which is where Odell gets its apostrophe. Mm -hmm. And so she turns, she, she starts off almost as Irish-American, although she's Irish enough. Um, and I was, we were always... Uh, in my teenage years, frustrated by the lack of understanding among the American Irish or people who claim to be Irish in what was actually going on in Northern Ireland. So the troubles in Northern Ireland, the killings in Northern Ireland, which were so ordinary and intimate and terrible and near, um, made me in particular question my Irishness and the limits of nationalism and the limits of all those wonderful and all those stupid stories that uh, accumulate around a national image. Um, and I remember being in America uh, and talking about this briefly to an audience in Los Angeles and saying, you know, if I could wake up in the morning and be Ukrainian and it meant that no one had to die, well, that would be fine by me. 
I'll be absolutely fine. I would give up Irishness in the in the morning if it meant that people weren't kneecapped or. And two young fellows came up to me afterwards and said, "How could you say that?" And they were three, four generations in, so their romantic idea of their Irishness was more important to them at the remove of Los Angeles than the lives of people in Belfast and Derry. And I just thought, well, what's that? I mean, it's sort of revolting, isn't it? Um, uh, so that was part of the seed of Catherine O'Dell, who, who, who liked a violent man. It's fascinating that in the book, it's never been better expressed, the sense in which Englishness is almost, to my mind, the black backing on the mirror that allows yes. Catherine O'Dell to see herself and yet she, she sells herself as Irish. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to, I don't want to you know, open a school and call it an academy, but it speaks to the very moment in England, this sense of a resurgent performativeness of Englishness. Yes. Do you see that? I mean, I'm not saying I, it's conscious I see it, in the book. It, but. Very clear, clearly. I mean, this has, been, uh, uh, this has been an aspect of Irish life all my life, uh, what it is to, to have national pride, what it does to your women, what it does to your men, what it does to your sense of how you present yourself in the world, how you sell yourself in the world. Catherine O'Dell is Irish for love. She's also Irish for money. So those, that, that what is happening in uh, England in particular now is, you know, you just, it's just very interesting. You want to say we've been there. And we've come out the other side, we hope. There's a lot of writers in this audience. And I, I, just, I know that people often want to ask questions about research. Uh, research is something that you can either do sentence by sentence, as we often do, or actually before the book even begins to be written. And you've made decisions in this book. I mentioned it to you before. For example, at one point, a play of hers uh, is reviewed by Mil- Michael Billington, in The Guardian, not Sheridan Tempest III of The Daily People or some invented thing. That's a choice, a technical choice for a novelist. And I just wondered, in your research, but also segueing into your decisions you're making about the relationship between the imagined world and the real world, is that something you feel is important for you? Well, those names like Michael Billington are, are, are like the slob of the silk, you know, you want a bit of grain in it. Well, that's what I'm asking you, it's that grain, because you could make that other choice, couldn't you, to just invent a critic? I know, I invented a lot of the fictions, I I was interested in the lives of actresses who moved through a lot of second-rate fictions written by men, and they play these really very silly parts one way or the other, so she moved, I was quite pleased with inventing Jack Ashburnham and (laughs) Sheldon Cox, who wrote The Awakening and A Prayer Before Morning. Yes. and I mean, I, I had to look them up. They were so convincing. I thought I was really you know, pleased with them. These have got them. to be in Hollywell's guide. Yeah, you know. uh, but no, I made, I made them up, but 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 very happily. And then I have the real ones in there too. Um, one of the, she goes to Edinburgh late. It's a bit hyper real, you know. You wouldn't really necessarily. I don't want to to diss myself, but you wouldn't necessarily get an actress doing all the things that Catherine O'Dell did. But she goes to Edinburgh at one stage, and the reviews 
are enthusiastic. Michael, not Michael Billington, but the, the London reviews are enthusiastic. The Scottish reviews are kind of lukewarm, and the Irish reviewer travelled over specially said it was a disgrace and it was completely <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and and that, that's kind of that would be drawn from a long life of knowing how reviewing works. And our lives, I was going to say, it's very familiar. So that's as real as it gets. Yeah. Now, Michael Billington has just put a name on that, but that, that, that other stuff is equally researched, you might say. You might call it an attitude or you might call it a joke, but it's, a, it's, it's true enough. That, that, that question of true enough, though, is so crucial, isn't it, in fiction? I remember when talking to Norman Mailer when he was in the chair being interviewed uh, many years ago and talking to him about the executioner's song, which of course was advertised at the time as a real-life novel, you know, a sort of contradiction that he wrote out and indeed won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. When, when I asked him why it was that the book seemed at its most fictive, in a sense, when every single detail on the page was from reality, but the placing of it, uh, the, the way he'd sounded it out, somehow, he'd just chosen the right details yeah. from life. I suppose that would be my you, argument. You'd need an iceberg theory. I mean, there's a section in New York, and there's a, there's a dodgy cardinal was in New York at the time who was involved in all kinds of things. He's actually in the book, but she just thinks she sees on the altar of St. Patrick's a guy she's seen in a bar. So I could have had two pages about the dodgy cardinal mm. um, and all his deals with the unions and the mayor and mm. the mafia and whatever, but I just instead put that glimpse there and name a few other kind and of And did you just names. put the glimpse there or did you cut it back? Did it, was this book cut much? Oh yeah, well, you know, I have a big bin. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I want to open up to questions because I know you'll have some, and we've got just... Uh, over 10 minutes to do that. So I'm sure there's one of these famous roving mics. Um, so stick your hand up if you get something. Um, we don't absolutely need to stick with actress. We can surf over Anne's collected works if you yeah, feel... Don't ask me about anything very old because I was very young then. <laughs> there's a fellow here up the back. Thank you. Um, I just wanted... To, you talked at the beginning of the, um, the chat about the moment of seeing someone um, being starstruck and it being a mixture of delight and disaster. And I didn't quite understand what you meant by the disaster. Was it a sense of something bad about to happen? I wonder I, if you could explore that it, a bit. It may actually just be a sense of one's own smallness. And you go, oh my God, 
I've just met the Pope, or whatever, or whatever does it for you, you know. Um, and that sense of amazement contains some sense of imminent smallness, perhaps. The mic can go over here. There's also a sense, you know, is there in Don DeLillo, for example, of being in company with famous people makes you feel as if you're in history in some way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Anyway, here comes another question. Um, Thank you. Uh, uh, On my way here, um, someone asked me where I was going, and I said, and I mumbled something about um, coming to to see you, and um, uh, they asked, well, what kind of author is she like? And I mumbled again something about um, acutely perceptive, uh, remorseless, um, social mores, um, psychological insight, etc. And then I thought, and then I said, um, but I'm not sure that she actually likes people. Um, now, what I think Get I you meant, and your projections. Precisely. <laughs> now, what I thought I meant, what I think I meant is... I'm not sure that she loves her characters, whether she can forgive her characters. Forgive them. Can you, could you comment? What is forgiveness? Just as a matter of interest. Um, I suppose to, acknowledge, to appreciate one's faults or their faults and yet still be able to have a, uh, an unconditional attitude of warmth towards them. Oh, um, I do love my characters, I suppose, but that would be foolish because they're not... I, you know, I love my children <laughs> because they're real. Uh, I, I, I don't know whether I'm obliged to love my characters who aren't real. And does that make me a very mean person for love, not loving them enough? Or is a failure another, to love. Is that another aspect of that expectation that can also exist that one's characters should be likable? This is all a mystery to me. This is, but uh, this is, these are all words that I have no understanding of. To like is to enjoy, okay, or approve. I had to look it up recently. Uh, uh, Forgive would take me a while, because I don't know what wrong they've done. Um, they're all value added words, really. Um, and I'm kind of just putting them on the page. And you can add the value or detract it as you like, the emotional, your emotional, Response uh, is is you know I'm not really a realist either, but that the, the, another word remorseless is really interesting because people often say that writers are ruthless and we just sit there you know we literally just sit there and and people say oh you're so ruthless I sat in a room for five years and people still didn't forgive me. <laughs> Or like me, or love me for it. But <laughs> um, I suppose I I, 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 I don't know what to say. Well, let's keep it in the air, but go for another question in the meantime. Hello, hi. Um, I'm hoping this isn't going to be a disaster. <laughs> I'm just a bit starstruck, but um, I wondered if you might comment on the sort of negative side of that kind of Irishness that we might rely on for money or for reputation yeah. and the, the sort of envy it might generate, like the smiling Irish eyes or the look of the Irish. Or, and I just wondered if you comment on the sort of side of that that generates sort of a negative envy or jealousy or something. Well, you know, I've already done the negative side of Irishness really quite thoroughly tonight. And uh, 
um, and also what we used to call plastic pa- uh, plastic parties, which was uh, a kind of uh, fake jollity among uh, Americans who considered themselves Irish. And actually, that is kind of ungenerous one way or the other. I did find growing up that the idea of a lovely Irish girl was a very big imposition because I didn't particularly feel super lovely. On the other hand... Later in my life, I, uh, I, I look at my, my day-to-day, the texture of my daily life in Ireland, and I find that it is true that it is uh, quite an informal culture, and people are friendly, and that an awful lot of the tropes that I rejected growing up as, as uh, anti-feminist, among other things, are part of the pleasure of, of uh, the cultural pleasures of the place. So... Um, if I can be positive uh, instead. Another Irish question. Um, I was just wondering if you see yourself as part of an Irish tradition, a contemporary Irish canon. If you see your writing as part of something larger, a larger trend. Yeah, I can't wake, I can't wake up and be Ukrainian and I can't wake up, it seems, uh, and not be female, though all things are possible these days. And in fact, you can change your passport, you know, with greater difficulty in some cases. Um, the, uh, the sense of tradition, I think Ireland is just the right size for good writing because uh, people are within reach of each other and new writers are read by older writers. There is a sense of circumference. There's a sense of competition. There's a sense of a conversation going or a hidden conversation or a, or, or a possession and, and stealing and repossession that goes on from one voice to the other and it works very well. And I think that problematic sense of nationality is part of that argument that has given us a really kind of rich uh, group of books. Um, so that's a very positive answer about the, the tradition. I have also, in, in the recent past, stuck my elbows out quite firmly and talked about the gendering of the Irish tradition. Um, and that just seems to be over almost as soon as I said it, you know, because uh, the Irish women writers are rampantly successful now. Thank you. Uh, I'll preface this by saying I haven't read the book yet, but... I'm someone who's got a background as an actor, working in in theatre particularly, and I'm always on the lookout for good fiction that deals seriously with what that is, you know, and I I don't find much of it. I wondered, did you have a a sense of that, that this was relatively unexplored territory, and and maybe why that might be? It really was, and I had a problem settling into it, although I've always been interested in the sense of storiedness in the theatre and I've been interested in the tawdriness of it and I've been interested in the disjunction between what happens under the lights and backstage and I could never find a way into it because it just seemed too uh, much on the brink of turning into colour or uh, sentimentality. and, uh, but I have, uh, uh, you know, Wise Children by Angela Carter is said to be one of the great theatre books, but I prefer Nights at the Circus. Uh, Wise Children is full of Shakespearean plotting and twins and all kinds of, but it's like the book is a Shakespearean, the novel is a Shakespearean play, whereas uh, Nights at the Circus is about a, a kind of, a, a woman who, a trapeze artist who can fly and it gets the kind of vertigo um, and thrill of performance um, much better. So I think you have to look 
you separate out the pleasures of theatre and see can you find them here or there. Um, it's difficult. It's like writing a great uh, novel about Marxism or something because it has an already developed discourse and the novelist is trying to get under those. Um, uh, and that, that, that's one of the challenges. We're into the last few minutes for questions, so if anybody has any, please. Thank you very much for the really interesting discussion. Um, just following on from the question from the speaker at the front, I just wanted to ask about... Um, well, it seems like the most exciting writing coming out of Ireland right now is being done by women. And I wanted to ask, within the writing, um, do you feel that there's any uh, direct engagement with the legacy? So the kind of gendered legacy. Do you feel that the oh writing... God, this is like doing an exam. <laughs> I, I, I haven't read them all. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. Y yeah. Um, Sorry, do well, you feel you, that there's a disjunction well, that they're all flying the coop? These great doves of... <laughs> I think there's a, there's a sweetness to the moment uh, where things that... that, that, that voices that uh, uh, with, with some urgency are now being unleashed on the world that's ready to hear them. And so there is, a, there is an aesthetic sweetness to that moment that you can produce... that, that produces good work. Um, there's no dissonance between the reception and, and, and the articulation. And that can produce very, very fine writers. Whether, you know, um, whether any of the, the newer Irish female voices are, are, you know, for or against Joyce is a question for them, I think. But for you. The oh, for me? Yeah. What? But do you feel, how do you feel... Um, with this, you know, for me, growing up in Ireland, it was kind of like this long line of male writers that were very highly revered and really yes. untouchable. And I feel in this book that you're having a lot of fun yes. with some of those figures. And I was wondering in your writing if you feel a space has opened up where we can now have a bit of fun and we can not take these figures so seriously and... Yeah. Well, just to answer that question a little, I think uh, I'd, draw it, uh, I'd, I'd say that there, there is a double strand to the Irish tradition and one would be the, uh, the playfulness of Joyce and Flann O'Brien and one, the other, would be the very serious uh, adherence of language to the world that you get in McGahern, say. And, and, and ve that's very involved in, in issues of the patriarchy, uh, McGarren's interest in his father and in what his father did to him is, uh, you know, a produced abiding work there. I did feel growing up that, 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 adhere, that stickiness of his prose to the real world was inescapable and claustrophobic and very male. And I, preferred or ha I, I preferred or took access to the more playful tradition. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we've run out of trouble, uh, time. Before I ask you to offer a round of applause, Anne, I'd just like to say that um, the London Review is very proud of Anne. It's one of the great um, experiences if you're a dedicated reader uh, and publisher of essays um, to grow up with a writer um, to go with them from book to book and essay to essay, and we all feel that way about Anne. If, if I read a more intelligent novel this year, I'll join the Foreign Legion. 
Please, by uh, Anne will be happy to thank you. Thank you so much, Sandra Hagen, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.